Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio. We are going to talk about it. This is going to be an amazing show, I'm sure, because we've got some great stories for you. Me, my name is Chris. I I have a new segment. Uh, we've done we've done um, Molecule in a Minute. We've done In Your Element. Um, I think we've done Planets before. I can't remember what we called that. I think we may have another one coming up today. Don't want to, don't want to, um, you know, Spoiler. you know, spoilers, spoilers. But um, yeah, I'm going, well, I'm going to call it like color my world or something. I'm going to talk about colors, and I'm going to look at the color violet is what I'm oh. interested in tonight, and I'll explain why I'm interested in the color violet. But uh, yeah, that's 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 me. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, Stu, what do you offer us? Well, we were just talking before we started about how whether whether birds are dinosaurs or whether dinosaurs are birds, and there's been some research that shows that almost certainly they came from the same source, uh, and they've done some work with actual bird embryos to figure out how that worked. Right. So we're going to find out more about that. Okay, good. I look forward to seeing if we can turn a bird back into a dinosaur. Mm. Sounds involved. Yes. Mm. Beth. What have you got for us? Okay, look, I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit and I am talking about Pluto and the New Horizons spacecraft. That will be there in July fourteenth. So I'm just I'm just getting everyone prepared for this. Okay. Um, what if yeah. it discovers something that you're not anticipating? Well look we'll, uh, yeah, just just we, we need the background knowledge. Okay, so that's okay, what, good. That's good. What People can watch it. They can be prepared. They can listen, yeah. and they can yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, excellent. Well, on with the show. Okay, so you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and yeah, Color My World is is um, is this my new segment or name pending, I guess, working title perhaps we'll call it. Uh, yeah, and I'm interested in colors. Um, and look. I, I guess I've been reading a lot about light, light lately because this is the International Year of Light. We're all excited about light and colour. It is. Yeah, didn't you know that? I didn't know that. Oh, well, I must have missed the memo. Well, it's, it's, um, it's May, so you can, you've got time to... I can catch up. Catch up, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, and colour is another thing. And I heard someone mention the other day, I think it was on, it was on Radio Lab, which is a US podcast... Um, that if you're interested in science on the radio thing, you can listen to. But there's just a throwaway After line. After listening to us, of course. Yeah. yeah. The throwaway line when they said that indigo was a colour that Isaac Newton made up. And I thought, what? What about Roy G. Biv? There's the rainbow. That's his fault. Oh, really? Roy G. Biv. Okay, so so I thought I would look into this and um, and find out what is the story with indigo? Is it really a made-up colour or not? Um, well, it turns out, Kind of is a made-up colour, I suppose. Uh, so, aren't they all technically made-up colours? They are in a Can sense. We make up the yeah. entire world. But this is, it gets really interesting. The way we actually perceive colour is actually fascinating, um, and it gets quite complicated. I mean, we've had recently the big internet controversy of the dress. Oh yes, you know that some people saw as blue and black, other people saw as white and gold, and uh, you know people have done a lot of. There have been studies published on this lately, I think, um, trying to work out what's actually going on. And it just shows how subjective colour can be. It depends on 
on the circumstances of what you're seeing on the lighting, on the contrast and this kind of stuff. So colour is quite complicated and generally is quite subjective. To say what something's real colour is, is is tricky. So, um, But anyway, there is, of course, there is a basis to it. I mean, there's a reason we see colours and this is mostly due to the frequencies of light. Mm. Um, and so what Newton was looking at was the spectrum, the rainbow of light, the, the Roy G. Biv, as, as you mentioned, Beth. Um, and when you, when you split the light up, it's different colours. And if you, you can actually divide the spectrum into a bunch of segments that you can arbitrarily decide to say, this is this colour and this is that colour and this is something else. Mm. Um, now, and this is where indigo comes out being kind of a made-up colour because... It seems most like what happened is that Newton wanted to have seven colours because there are seven notes in the musical scale. And so he thought, you know... He, he liked the number seven. He liked it was, the number it seven. It was a good so number. He, he, he sneaked in an extra one. So nowadays when you look at the way people split up the spectrum, they often don't count indigo as a separate colour. Oh. Wow. Um, they just count it as part of violet. Well, it's more part of blue. Part of blue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, so violet is is um, obviously the extreme end of the, of the spectrum. I should explain what the spectrum is, actually. Um, so it's visible light. In mm-hmm. it's The colours we perceive are due to the wavelength or the frequency of the light. So um, the shorter the wavelength, the higher frequency, the oscillations, is that is the violet end of the spectrum, and the, the long wavelength, sort of low frequency, is the red end of the spectrum. Um, ultraviolet, of course, is beyond violet. Um, so violet goes between 380 to 450 nanometers in wavelength. Blue is generally between 450 to 495 nanometers. So, and indigo is kind of right in the middle there, but more on the blue side. It's usually said to be between 450 to 420. So it's definitely part of blue in that sense. And you look at the original, um, where the name came from. It came from the indigo dye, which is essentially a blue dye that came out Mm. of India. So yeah, it's kind of wasn't a real color in that sense. But this is what got me thinking. This is why violet is my color of the week, I suppose, is because I was thinking how, you know, okay, so... Violet is one end of the spectrum and red is the other. Why Why is violet we see between kind of blue and, and red? Why is it – why do we actually see – Yeah, so if you mix blue why, and red yeah. together, you get purple. Yeah, I mean we often represent colour by a colour wheel. You, mm. you've, you've seen that, you know, sort of around thing. This is where Newton got his, his extra colours from with his colour wheel. Um, so why is it round? Why, why, how can violet, which is be, be between blue and red, which is kind of it's in the opposite end of the spectrum to red, so it kind of meets itself yeah. in the other side yeah. of the rainbow. So this is where we need to look at how we actually see colours. And the current, I suppose, way we operate with colours, particularly on computer screens, you've probably heard of, is the RGB system. So mm-hmm. red, green and blue um, are the primary colours of light, as opposed to the primary colours of paint or of ink, which are, are different. Um, so... Essentially, we, with our computer screens, we can make up our huge range of colours just by having little LEDs coloured red, green and blue and the way that we combine them. And these roughly, the way these, these work is they're roughly corresponding to activating the um, some receptor cells in our eyes. So we have two types of kind of light receptors in our eyes. There are, there are rod cells, which are kind of rod-shaped, and cone cells, which are cone-shaped, as the name would suggest. And the cone cells are the ones that detect colour. They have pigments in them and they respond to a range of colours. Uh, now, they don't have a specific colour that they, like one specific colour, they kind of overlap a lot. They, they respond to a different range. Um, but yeah, generally, they're kind of, there's one is sort of a bit towards the red end, one is the green bit, and one is the blue bit. It's not quite exactly like that, but that's roughly the way we divide them, and certainly that's the way we use our, our computer screens. 
What makes it work though is these these so these um the light hits these pigmented cells, activates them, and then they pass the message down to nerve cells which are in their retina, and then they interpret them and send them into signals in the brain. But the 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 cells in the retina don't respond to red, green, and blue. They juggle it around and do something different. And this is where it gets complicated. Are you with me so far? You got the yeah the red, green, and I'm blue. I'm following. Right? Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, they're essentially. Three, three kinds of signals that end up going to our brain. There is uh, one which is basically the overall luminosity, so it's a black and white kind of, is it bright or is it dark? Mm-hmm. Then there's two other ones, and they kind of take this red, green, and blue information, they split it up into two bits. So there's one cell that responds to whether it is um, how much green it's got, effectively, and then another one that responds to how much blue it's got. Right. Okay? So if you have... Um, so essentially, the, the so the, the green one on the one end of it, it can detect green, and the other end it detects a combination of red and blue, which is magenta, right? And the other one detects blue on one end, and the other end detects yellow, which is a combination of of green and red light. Mm-hmm. I'm glad radio is not a visual medium. Um, <laughs> so, and this is why you know you talk about sort of there are impossible colors, so you can't kind of get a yellowish blue color because they're complete opposites on the way our cells mm. interpret color. And you can't get a greenish red. These things don't make any sense. Uh, you know, so these, right. these colors don't work together. Um, and so th- this explains what violet is. So violet is what you get when it's, there's no green, essentially. Mm. So you get, you're firing the magenta kind of side of things because there's no green in there. And there's no yellow in there, so you're firing the blue side of things. So it's kind of a combination between the magenta and the blue, and that's why we see violet as sort of a combination between that sort of purplish color of the, both the, the magenta and, and the blue, even though it's far beyond blue on the spectrum. Mm. Does that make any sense? It does. Hmm. Anyway, it's, it's the machinery of our eyes that makes us see It's the machinery of our eyes. Yeah. And it's fascinating that we can, we can do this. Basically, we had this complicated system, which essentially is taking light into a spectrum and is essentially turning it into a wheel by looking at these oppositional colors and doing it in a way that can actually help us determine, yeah, make some sense out of the world. And how we, from that, we can determine millions and millions of colors. Um, we can, of course, see much more than our computer screens can, can give us. I'm sure screens will improve you know, one day in the future. Um, there are some people who uh, apparently have four different types of cones in their eyes and can perhaps see colours that the rest of us can't. Um, very mild superpowers. Yeah, very mild. They, you know, they <laughs> um, probably not outside the visible spectrum. They could just see more colours within the visible spectrum. So it's very hard to know what that would look like. And how do you know if you can see more colours? Because you never know what anyone else can Exactly. See. It's very you, difficult. You can do a test because they, they just show you a whole sheet of colours and say, point to the ones that are different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yep. Then there was the mantis shrimp, uh, which has the best eyes in the animal kingdom. It has it can see it has sixteen different cones. Wow. So it can see colours that no one else could even dream of. I mean, we have no idea what a mantis shrimp can see. It can also see polarized light. It can do all kinds of crazy stuff. So, can it yeah. see outside the visible spectrum as well? Um, I think it probably can slightly. Um, look, our limitation of the visible spectrum apparently is not just do what our our cone cells can detect. It's also things like the lens of our eye um, mm. absorbs light. As sort of as well when you get start to get outside the visible spectrum. So um, apparently there are people who have their lenses missing who can see into the ultraviolet because it's the lens that's stopping you seeing ultraviolet. So, and obviously insects can see in ultraviolet yeah, as well. Yeah, so, so insects yeah. can do that too. So anyway, there you go. And predator can see in, in infrared. <laughs> 
So there you go. So um, I think we've explained what what Violet is. We might have to put something up on the on our website to show you some pictures of how all this works and how it looks like. But um, yes, um, color is an amazing thing, and uh, indigo is not real. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. The science behind the film series Jurassic Park is pretty flimsy, and we've probably talked about this before, I think about Jurassic Park. and um, So the scientists supposedly extract DNA from blood-sucking insects trapped in amber and grow that into fully formed dinosaurs. And basically that's just movie magic because even if dinosaur DNA was recoverable, the means to grow live dinosaurs that resemble their ancient ancestors is not really as simple as sticking them in chicken eggs. I think they used frogs, didn't they, in the movie? They they um they grafted their DNA with frog DNA for some yeah movie making reason um, mm. that didn't really make a lot of sense, especially because the frogs were spoiler alert uh, sex changing frogs. That's right, yeah, um, which caused massive problems for them down the track. Yeah, but back in the real world, uh, in a recent experiment published in the May edition of the journal Evolution. Scientists studying the evolution of bird beaks have accidentally done something not too far removed from growing dinosaurs in chicken eggs. So they set out to understand how birds evolved beaks, which are a defining feature of all birds. All birds have beaks. Um, And it's quite different from the facial structure of all other vertebrate animals. There's no other vertebrates that have beaks. Only birds do. Um... So the first, the, the, they first identified all of the proteins involved in the formation of beaks and studied the development of the cranium of birds uh, compared with other animals representing other major vertebrate groups. So mice, they actually looked at mice, emus, alligators, lizards, and turtles. So hang on, um, what is a beak then? Is it... A beak is a structure of the skull. What about a parrotfish? That is not the same as a beak. That's mm-hmm. just a funny-looking mouth. Okay. What, what about what about a, um, those turtles with a snapping kind of? Again, that's just a funny-looking <laughs> mouth. <laughs> right. So a beak uh, is a specifically on. bird thing. Okay. Um, but so what they found was that birds have a specific cluster of genes related to facial development that other animals don't have. Um, and it seems obvious that bird faces come from bird genes, but nobody had really looked into it before which seems quite unusual. Um, So once they identified the proteins that are responsible for making beaks in birds, they chemically inhibited them at an early stage of embryo development in tiny little chicken, fertilised chicken eggs. Um, So before the skull developed, they put these chemical inhibitors in that blocked these bird uh, beak-forming proteins in the embryos. Um, Now, when the treated embryos progressed, they didn't have beaks. But instead, they grew craniums much more like their ancestral relatives and similar to modern-day reptiles. Oh, like a dinosaur head. Like a dinosaur head. 
Um, so their work shows that as an adaptation, the beak is not just a modified snout. It's actually a completely different adaptation which the other animals lack. So that cluster of genes that they identified uh, is, doesn't occur in the other animals. So you can't grow another animal with a beak because they don't have the genes to do it. Um, only birds have those genes. Um, so the embryos were not grown to full term, so none of the dino chickens were actually hatched. Um, obviously, there are ethical concerns in this type of research, um, but the authors did say that they thought the chickens would have been able to survive. There was nothing physically wrong with them, just that they had an unusual shaped face compared to other chickens. Um, they observed the rest of the body developed as a normal chicken, and the only structural changes were observed in the shape of the bones in the skull. Um, so I guess, you know, this is an innovative way to study evolutionary developments where you can't find enough fossils or comparative analysis doesn't provide enough information. And in future, it could be used to solve other mysteries of biology and mm. evolution. There was, that, um, there was a bunch of papers they put out in December last year, I believe, they looked at bird evolution. They did a lot of the, the sequencing of genomes of, of modern birds mm. to try and work out when they diverged and how they yeah, how they evolved from, from dinosaurs and um, particularly, I suppose, considering that you had the extinction of the dinosaurs and the birds survived that, so there was only a small number of bird species that survived that mm -hmm. that event and then branched out into the huge range of birds we got today. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, this I mean, this is the first kind of work that I've seen that does this kind of, I guess, practical evolutionary study by blocking or, or silencing genes to see what happens when you when you turn them on and off. Right. Um, and, you know, it could it could be used, similar techniques you could use to figure out other things, but you wouldn't want to count your chickens before they hatch. So NASA's spacecraft, New Horizons, reaches Pluto on July 14, and it will start to send back images of Pluto's surface to us here on Earth. Now, I'm sure the media will be all over it like a rash um, and everyone will just have so much Pluto um, put burnt into their eyeballs as it is exposed for everyone to see. Um, but why don't we start preparing ourselves for the excitement? Let's do that. Yeah. So what is really going on out there at the edges of our solar system? So we all know Pluto, but well, we know the name. We know it very well. Mm -hmm. We And like... We have a fondness for it. Well, I do, um, after it was recently demoted from a planet to a dwarf planet. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are still bitter about that, and there's apparently still some it's, lobbying to reverse the decision. Yeah, it's, it's also still a It's thing. also totally ruined the mnemonic that I used to know to mm. remember the planet names and order. I could tell you mine, but it's a bit rude. <laughs> so I won't. Mine was very clean. Okay. Mine was... Uh, my very elderly ma just sits up near pa. Oh, that is But with no clean. pa, it just sits up near. Nothing. And it stops. She's just left hanging. Maybe I'll change it to just sits up nights. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the problem with Pluto um, is that, look, it was just it's just way too social. There's just so many other things out there with it. Um, so if we're going to include Pluto as a planet, we'd have to include all of its friends. Hang on, wait a second. So you were talking a moment ago, you said at the very edge of the solar system. Are you saying yeah. there's a lot out there? There's a lot out there. This is not so, like the end of everything? <laughs> it just keeps going. So after Neptune, there yep. is um, the Kuiper Belt. So okay. this is kind of like a donut-shaped um, kind of – it's pretty diverse. There's lots of objects in there. Like there's frozen ice blobs, kind of gassy – 
frozen gas blobs, rocky ice chunks, rocky ice dwarf planets, which is Pluto. Yeah. Um, and they were grouped together in the Kuiper Belt. Um, and there may be hundreds of thousands of icy bodies larger than 100 kilometers across. And maybe trillion, uh, which is quite a lot, um, wow. comet or more comets within the Kuiper Belt. Wow. Um, and of the, the bigger objects, they have great names. So there is Make Make. Um, no, I don't know that one. There's Kwawa or 50,000 Kwawa. It's also known as, I'm kind of confused about that. Homea. There's a lot going on. There's Eris. Eris, exactly. And Sedna. Sedna. So just so just because something's got a name doesn't mean it's a planet. Well, that's the thing. So the one of the definitions of planet is that it has cleared its kind of area due to, I guess, gravity of other objects, um, near of other objects nearby. And so Pluto has not done that. There is all these objects kind of with it in the Kuiper Belt past Neptune. Mm-hmm. So this is why it is not a planet according to the definition. It is, but a dwarf planet, which is, I guess, something. Dwarf planets. You have to draw the line somewhere. You do. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. So we could have, um, we could be hundreds of thousands of planets in the solar system, which would be very confusing to make a mnemonic. Mnemonic, yeah. Who's your Mm -hmm. ma going to set up with then, Stu? Who's who's going to set up? Well, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So science is all about drawing boundaries around things. So we've got to get to it. And this is a good example of it, even though you're right, it's hard to, it's hard to draw the line. Um, It's pretty, um, what is a planet? I don't know. Um, and so New Horizons is kind of rushing towards Pluto because some of these planets, including Pluto, have an atmosphere that freezes and kind of collapses onto them when it is away from the sun. So when Pluto's orbit draws it away from the sun, mm-hmm. its atmosphere freezes and collapses. Because it's on a funny orbit, isn't it? Yeah, it is on a funny orbit. Um, so I think someone's closer than Neptune to the sun. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, on a really kind of angled thing that is been disturbed at some point. So by, it's, a, it's by elliptical. It's not, well, they're all yeah. elliptical, but this one is, yeah, very much more elliptical than Pronounced. The, other, the other planets. Yeah, yeah. I think it's at a, a slightly funny angle as well. So, yeah, mm. um, it's usually the furthest, well, not planet, but it's usually further out than Neptune, but occasionally it is closer. Mm, exactly. So when it moves away, um, the atmosphere, so that's why New Horizons is trying to make it in time. Mm-hmm. And But it's, it's gravity isn't large enough to kind of trap New Horizons to do any orbits. So New Horizons is really just doing a flyby, and then it's going to keep on going out there wow. into the Kuiper Belt to see what else it can find. Onto that's new, Onto cool. New Horizons, hence the name, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So newer, do, we know how long, do we know how long it's going to be there in the neighbourhood? Uh, no, I don't know how long it takes for a flyby. But I'm sure it'll take a lot of pictures very quickly. Yeah, surely. Yeah. And, and if we want to know more, here is Dr. Fran Begnal, um, who is mission co-invest, mission co-investigator talking to NASA media about New Horizons and Pluto. Pluto has a variety of distances from the Sun and from Earth uh, because it's not in a circular orbit. Uh, it's in an oblong or uh, eccentric orbit. And so it moves from a distance 30 times the distance from the Earth and the Sun to 50 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Now, we all know the distance between the Earth and the Sun is 93 million miles. It's something we learn at school. So if you do the math and multiply um, the distance that will actually fly by Pluto, that's 31 times the distance between the Earth uh, and the Sun, by that 93 million miles, you'll get 3 billion miles. So Pluto will be um, 3 billion miles away from Earth when we fly by. 
We want to know a lot about Pluto because it's the, we've never really got a good view of what it looks like. Uh, even with the best telescopes, even with the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, it just looks like a fuzzy blob. So uh, we are really in an exploration phase of trying to understand this planet, get our first glimpse of what the surface looks like, see whether there are craters or volcanoes or frost or cracks or, you know, what does it look like on the surface? We want to know what it's made of, so we'll make measurements of the surface composition. Is it water ice? Is it uh, nitrogen ice? Is there uh, carbon dioxide and so on and so forth? We want to look at the chemical composition. Uh, we'll also be making measurements of the atmosphere. It has a very tenuous atmosphere, uh, and, but we will be making measurements to see what it's made of and what it's like and whether or not it has frozen onto the surface uh, as the planet moves away from the sun. One of the things that NASA wants to find out is whether or not uh, Pluto has any more moons. Now, very recently, we've discovered that there are two new moons uh, discovered with the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and so now we're thinking, are there more moons? Are there three, four, five, many? Uh, or are there rings? Could little Pluto have little rings around it, just as Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune have rings? So uh, NASA wants to do the basic exploration it does when it first goes to a planet, which is to check it out, see what's there, and do an inventory of what we might want to go back later and do a more thorough study of. The Kuiper Belt has been discovered fairly recently. Uh, the first object was discovered in the Kuiper Belt about 1992. So this is a something like the asteroid belt, but much, much further out. It's out beyond the orbit of Neptune, and uh, Pluto is the king of the Kuiper Belt. It's the biggest object that we've found so far, um, though we think there may be other objects maybe as big as Pluto. Uh, and so right now we think there are about a 1,000 objects spread between 30 and 50 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun and um, there could be many more. And I can tell you the thing I know about Pluto, my little, little factoid. Cause please, I, have please you do. Ever, have you ever wondered which came first, Pluto the planet or Pluto the dog? I, I have actually wondered what's the connection between Pluto Pl the planet Pluto and Pluto the, the dog. the Greek god of the underworld, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he was. You know, he was a Roman, Roman, Roman version yeah. of, okay. of Hades, I think, was ah, a Greek yes. version. Yes. Um, and yeah. You're quite correct. Pluto was named, the planet was named, well, the dwarf planet was named after the Roman god. Uh, and then later that same year, I think the very next year, um, they named um, Mickey Mouse's dog after the planet because it was popular at the time. So I think the dog had actually appeared on film before the planet was named. Uh, and but it then, didn't have a name. And then, of course, this planet was discovered and everyone was talking about it and it didn't have a name. And so when they had to choose a new name for the dog, they thought, well, Everyone likes the name Pluto. Totally. It's a so, good, Pluto. Yeah, yeah. That's a good hipster baby name, I think. Pluto. So, yes, the, um, the, the dog came first, but its name came second. All right, that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. And that's it for a while from, from Beth, who I believe is, is leaving us for a bit. I am. I am indeed. I'm going um, traveling. Uh, and I, might, I may send something back from um, from. Uh, Europe while I'm there in the interviews so I may be in touch but yeah it's been lovely thank you for listening yeah well and it's been great having you here and um, you know I don't know who's going to tell us about the, the antimicrobial apocalypse with, I know. with you guys I'm pretty I, obsessed by that yeah well you know the microbiome I'm, I'm sure it'll, it'll carry on but yeah there's some great science in, in Europe and I'm sure you'll find some great things on your travels I will thank you Chris
Uh, now, Lost in Science, though, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR, I think we're called. Or you can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. Or you can listen to us on the radio next week when um, Chris, Stu, not Beth, <laughs> will get Lost, Lost in Science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.